0: A People's History of Five Neighborhoods, American Chinatown by Bonnie Tsui. Introduction, personal geography. Some people unpack when they first arrive in a city. Me, I look for Chinatown. It started, I suppose, with my grandparents traveling halfway around the world from Hong Kong. They settled in Manhattan's Chinatown in 1960. Even after moving to another Chinese enclave in Flushing, Queens, they kept going back, like clockwork, to their old neighborhood. Every morning, they took the Q26 bus and the number seven subway train to the sixth train to Canal Street, where my grandfather worked in a fortune cookie factory, and my grandmother was a seamstress. Every night, they brought home fresh vegetables bought from street vendors they'd come to know. I picture a set of footprints marking a path from Queens down to Lower Manhattan, traceable on a map of the New York City transit system. When I come here today, I'm keenly aware that it's their route I follow. New York, 1977. I am born in Flushing. My family's first apartment is a dingy affair with a leaky ceiling, and my brother is careful to pull me away from the drips. It's around this time at the end of the 1970s that economically depressed flushing starts to change, departing from its roots as an Italian and Greek neighborhood to become eventually its own Chinatown. I never get a chance to build loyalty for my first Chinatown. Before we hit school age, our parents move us to Long Island, where good public schools are a selling point. But it's not where we go to be Chinese. Manhattan's Chinatown is. My personal history with Chinatowns begins here, where we have wedding banquets, christenings, grocery shopping, daily life with my extended family of aunts, cousins, great uncles, fake uncles. Everyone's a relative, even when he's not. I don't love coming here. At my height, the negatives are magnified. The filth of the streets, old takeout containers littering the gutters, sharply jostling knees. But at the child's eye-level of experience, there is fascination, too. We children stick together, sidestepping dark, smelly petals and eyeing strangers warily, But eagerly poking fingers at tanks of lobsters or plastic kiddie pools of tiny turtles imported from Hong Kong. In the narrow-aisled shops, open buckets of candied plums and orange peels beckon while the grocery ladies glare. Even so, when we sidle up to the displays, they bark a scent and give us a taste. The Chinatown of my childhood occupies the same cultural epoch as Roman Polanski's eponymous film noir. I'm wholly unaware of what the director has done, of his construct of some inexplicable forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown idea, lurking beneath the surface that will dominate American cinema for decades. Still, because I'm not entirely of that place. I have, after all, one foot in the almost exclusively white Long Island suburbia of the early 1980s. I recognize the peculiarities, both small and large. Chicken feet at dim sum, a briskness of manner to outsiders, sizable extended families living under one roof, butting into each other's business, competitive noise, The quirks hint at larger ideas, values, even then. Eating is about appreciating flavors and textures, whatever the vessel, and about the symbols behind them. Phoenix claws being lucky, and is not to be limited by squeamish ideas of what is clean or dirty. A superiority is bred from thousands of years of culture established somewhere else and not from mere snobbery or unfriendliness. Investment in family protects against outsiders who threaten prejudice and misunderstanding so that you are never alone without a community. Finally, if you don't speak up, no one will hear what you have to say. Dai-sen-di. Make a bigger sound, my mother says, pushing me forward into the world. When I get my first job after college, I can walk to Chinatown for lunch every day. There is a complicated feeling inside me when I go. I'm here by choice, not dragged along for some family errand or event. What am I here for now on my own? I feel unobtrusive, invisible, a little nervous. My tongue is rough. I have to speak Cantonese. The sounds are like an envelope, and I put myself inside it. The street is still dirty, the people still loud, pushy, but I like it. Something here is bigger than me, a history, other people's stories that are somehow my stories, anchoring me in this city. I belong in a way that is deeper than a job or mere geography. A few years later, I moved to the East Village also a short walk from Chinatown. I make an effort to integrate Chinatown a little more into my regular life. For a year or two, I even visit Mr. Wen, an elderly teacher on Grand Street, a couple of times a week, to learn the workday vocabulary that I never heard in my house growing up. It will help with my travel and my writing, I tell the top editor at the magazine where I work, and he agrees. He pays for my lessons with Mr. Wen. Family friends sent their kids to Chinese school when I was growing up. Weekend classes in Chinatown that emphasized language and crafts and songs. It was the familiar effort to stay Chinese in a larger society that doesn't make it easy to be different. Somehow I had escaped the requirement and in the lazy way of youth, I was grateful at the time. But it's harder to learn now, even things I want to learn. It's funny to find myself coming here voluntarily after work, trudging up the subway steps at Grand Street Station to Mr. Wen, my adult version of Chinese school. Mr. Wen is crotchety, funny. He is the chief Cantonese dialect instructor at a small Chinese language school called Wasing, but he teaches Mandarin too. All the kids learn Mandarin now, Putonghua, the common dialect of all China. But I am of that in-between generation, just after the last great wave of Cantonese immigrants, a born-in-America daughter who can still speak her parents' language. Mr. Wen and I sit around chatting in a cramped classroom on the third floor of the school's old tenement building. Or rather, I sit and he stands, even though it's just the two of us. He's smart, trained as a professor, but messy looking. On a hot summer evening, he will sweat visibly through his button-down shirt, strands of thin gray hair glued to his forehead. He's the age of my grandparents, and he's from the same area, Tuosan, located in southern China's Guangdong province. Guangdong was once called Canton, and most of the Chinese immigrants to American Chinatowns throughout the 19th and 20th centuries were Cantonese from Guangdong's Pearl River Delta region. Today, a major manufacturing center of China that encompasses Hong Kong and Macau. On the other side of the world, they established communities of the same people and many more followed them, finding safety in numbers. They were the trendsetters of their time. Mr. Wen is nothing like my Gong Gong, my mother's father, but I think of the two of them together anyway. Mr. Wen talks a lot more than my grandfather who is quiet and stoic. Translucent, my father calls him referring, oh, translucent, my father calls him, referring to his pale skin, threaded delicately with thin blue veins. But he could have been talking about the impression my gunggung leaves, which is often faint, hard to discern, an effort to pin down. I never know what my gunggung is thinking. Perhaps that's why I feel such affection for Mr. Wen, who is the opposite. Oration is his gift. He steamrolls on, trying to get me to write Chinese. Why don't you want to learn characters? He asks me, drawing on the board. It makes it easier to learn new words. I'm too old for that, I say. I just want to talk more, get my mouth in shape. Learn some travel vocabulary so I can ask questions about the Chinese destinations I profile. His method of teaching is unlike that of any other language teacher I've known. It's circuitous, capricious, winging around the world from hotels and airports to cities and professions. Often, his topics have nothing to do with any of the things I've asked to learn about. He teaches me whatever occurs to him. He teaches me what what he thinks I should know. Eventually, somewhat reluctant to leave New York, but in need of a change of pace, I move across the country. I'm surprised to find unfamiliarity in its oldest Chinatown in San Francisco. Its main street feels empty for the first time I visit in the middle of the day. Shops seem to be closed and I can't find a steamed bun to save my life. A couple of Chinese grandmothers come toward me, As they pass, I realize that they are speaking English, and their accents born and bred American, not Chinese. And I wonder, what makes a Chinatown? San Francisco, 2003. Things happen in this Chinatown that I've never seen before. On my way to dinner one evening, I hear the familiar honking whine of a fire engine. I turn, expecting to see prototypical white male firefighters hanging out of the truck. Instead, I see an all-Chinese fire crew, with a stocky young Chinese woman in command, steering the back of the engine as it careens up Kearney Street and disappears around the corner. The age of this Chinatown, the country's oldest, has earned it a place of respect in the hierarchy of American Chinatowns. I find that the San Francisco Fire Department even teaches fire safety classes in Cantonese to benefit the Chinatown community. On the other hand, Chinese-American families have been here for generations, and many of those families now identify more with American than Chinese. The neighborhood is right up there with Golden Gate Bridge and Alcatraz as the city's most visited tourist attractions. And it's true that it is very much a tourist place. To know San Francisco's Chinatown is to recognize that it exists as a kind of first planet to several satellites. The Richmond and Sunset neighborhoods within the city, the revived Oakland Chinatown across San Francisco Bay. Many new Chinese immigrants now settle outside of the original Chinatown, but it remains a gateway for lower income immigrants. And still Chinese Americans of all generations gravitate back to it on weekends or holidays for school or camp or special events. The same questions come up for them as they did for me. What brings them back? What do they hope to find? I begin to give voice to these questions outside my own head. Non-Chinese people tell me all the time that they love Chinatown. There's so much to look at, they say, pointing at family-owned kite shops, 19th century Taoist temples, traditional herbalists, sidewalk displays showcasing ceramic rice bowls for sale. My friend Jane tells me that as a child, she was never satisfied until she had shot every pop gun in a certain knick-knack store on Stockton Street. Other friends say they can't resist the food, which is so cheap and so fun to eat. They point to restaurant menus, to swinging slabs of roast pork in the windows, and to delicate yellow egg custard tarts at the corner bakery. There's the promise of the unfamiliar, the exotic and the adventurous, paired with the comfort of being in a place that is, in fact, quite well known by now on the Western cultural radar. Still, they find something meaningful, exciting, intriguing there. It feels authentic, a woman I work with tells me, not like anywhere else. The more I hear about Chinatown, the more I want to hear from Chinatown, or rather from its people, be they new arrivals or old. They make the neighborhood continue on as it does. As early as the 1920s, sociologists predicted that Chinatowns would eventually disappear in the United States with the assimilation of immigrants into mainstream America. San Francisco Chinatown has not disappeared, but if many of the immigrants no longer live here, why does it persevere? What gives it, what gives this community its long-standing cohesive energy? What is San Francisco Chinatown today? And if this Chinatown is so different from the other I know in New York, what about those other American Chinatowns in between? The bigger questions I realize don't make sense until I ask the smaller ones and find out what Chinatown means to ordinary people. Why are you here? I begin to collect these neighborhood stories and I begin to feel that if the stories were seen alongside one another, they would create a complex and fascinating contemporary portrait of a distinctly Chinese American kind of community. The picture is of course a dynamic one i'm constantly surprised by new waves of chinese immigration and the unusual locales in which those populations are established and by the way the old ones shift and assimilate into mainstream america while still holding themselves slightly apart the scattering has occurred all over the world establishing chinatowns in places as far-flung as Vancouver, London, Yokohama, and Caracas, enriching the cultures of all of those cities. I don't mean to suggest that American Chinatowns eclipse these significance, And for many Chinese, of course, traditional Chinatowns have never figured significantly in their lives. But the immigrant experience has always been vital to the mythology of America. And so the iconic status of Chinatowns in this country commands particular attention. It captures my own attention precisely because it is close to home. In more practical terms, it offers a strict organization for this examination to rein in what could certainly have been a sprawling book and topic. But the rest of the world of course is always there and always felt. It's because of the current global focus on China and its diaspora that I am ever more intrigued by the roots and lively little known details of prominent American Chinatowns. In these places, Chinatowns have grown, changed, and thrived, exerting influence beyond their borders. I begin my work on this book in San Francisco's Chinatown. It seems right to start here. It's the oldest of the prominent American Chinatowns still in existence, and it's where I live now. In investigating what made San Francisco's Chinatown so distinctive, I get to know my adopted city more intimately. I come to appreciate the Bay Area as the ancestral home of Chinese America. The Chinese called San Francisco Dai big port or first port. It was through this gateway that tens of thousands of Chinese came during the gold rush, looking for sam or gold mountain and railroad boom times when China suffered from famine, war and natural disaster, and its people were welcomed to the western frontier as cheap labor. That welcome didn't last long. Racism quickly built up to the exclusion acts that rescinded that invitation. But the deep roots of a community were already established. In a republic that was constantly renewing itself with new immigrant pools, xenophobia moved rapid fire from one group to the next. In this way, American xenophobia was the first force to shape the first port's Chinatown. The 1906 earthquake, which remade Chinatown and the city itself, marked the point at which the community began to take charge of its own image through the shaping of its skyline. It was perhaps the first time an American Chinatown did this so explicitly, but certainly not the last. The building of self-image is a compelling and enduring theme resonating through the Chinatowns included here. It continues in the modern day with youth leaders who seize the opportunity to show and tell their own Chinatown stories to San Francisco's tourists and with today's new immigrants who struggle to find their voice in the gilded ghetto. They come face to face with the paradox that is Chinatown. A vibrant, jam-packed community that speaks their language but also an insular home that makes it harder to communicate within with the larger world outside. Back in New York's Chinatown, I find I can't escape my family history there. As in San Francisco, I explore the neighborhood with an eye to different generations and their stories. Observing the circumstances and geographies that have made the community unique. On streets, I had walked a thousand times the historic main street of Mott, quiet, crooked Doyers, busy East Broadway. I tried to slow down and see them anew. This being New York, I tracked the biggest economies in Chinatown, talking to predominantly female labor organizers for the ubiquitous garment trade and trace the thread of my grandmother's story as a longtime seamstress in several Chinatown garment factories. To find out about the history of ruling family associations, I seek out the unofficial mayor of Chinatown, the current president of the Chinese Consolidated Benevolent Association, what was for a century the supreme organization of the Chinese in New York, and I'm startled to learn that in the early 1970s, he shared cookie machine number two with my grandfather in a tiny mom and pop fortune cookie operation in Chatham Square. And when I visit Chinese schools, new and old, including a venerable institution on Mont Street based out of New York's oldest Catholic church, I end up standing at the spot where I was baptized three decades before. And so I incorporate that personal history in my travels through Chinatown. It becomes inevitable that I embrace the idea of a city within a city. That as big as New York is, and as large as its Chinese population has grown to be, spreading out across the boroughs, the still small world of Chinatown is where everyone knows somebody And chances are that somebody knows you. Over time, it has found itself inextricably tied to the ups and downs of the city outside. Chinatown became something the city needed in good ways and bad. In Los Angeles, I find a close knit Chinatown community that was also uniquely necessary to the larger city. Indeed, it was wed to Hollywood at an early age. The movies shaped Chinatown in surprising ways, and not just through their representations of the Chinese on celluloid. Those who saw it happen tell me that Hollywood had more of a hand in the actual creation of the Chinatown of the 1930s than most people know. In this Chinatown, reality and fiction came together to shape not only how America pictured Chinese and Orientals in the world but also to shape the construction of the physical place in which LA's Chinese resided. In the last several decades, the scattering of the Chinese American community to other pockets of LA, Monterey Park, Alhambra, and the San Gabriel Valley are just a few, has lessened the day-to-day importance of Chinatown here, but these new enclaves are still connected to the original As other Chinatowns do, LA's Chinatown persists as a cultural touchstone, indisputably compelling to generation after generation of Chinese Americans. In a way that these other communities do not, Chinatown sends a signal to explore your cultural identity. What happens when Chinatown ceases to be all Chinese? Can Chinatown be itself and something else too? A long time melting pot of cultures, the kingdom of Hawaii pulled in the Chinese as contract laborers beginning in 1852. For a time in the 1880s, the Chinese even outnumbered Caucasians in the islands. In 1900, Hawaii officially became a US colony. Throughout the 20th century, Honolulu's Chinatown became home to successive waves of Asian immigrants and finally to an arts community. Here Chinatown feels open. Many aspects of Chinese culture have made their way into Hawai'i's every day. In a social environment that was friendlier than that which was found on the mainland, the Chinese community achieved widespread success and acceptance paved the way for Honolulu Chinatown's distinctive renaissance. Listening in on the conversation here, I find insight into what it means to be Chinese and something new at the same time, an acceptance of self-invention that is a lesson for the rest of America. Finally, Las Vegas. Perhaps most of all, a man-made Chinatown in a man-made place reveals fascinating things to me about America and what sway Chinatown holds over it. On the surface, a Vegas brand Chinatown seems the ultimate American commodification of ethnic identity. What do I expect? A cheap imitation of the original, a cartoon world empty of substance. But the community that has sprung up around this Chinatown has startling parallels to the traditional one, fulfilling many of the functions of the old neighborhood. The depth of experience to be found here shows that as much as Chinatown is a tried and true attraction in this country, darker elements persist even in shiny, happy Vegas. In American culture, Chinatown also means negative things, James Chen, the founder of Las Vegas, as Chinatown says. It means filthy, gritty, dirty, produce on the street, people only speak Chinese, isolated, doesn't care about anyone else, or even worse, gangsters, prostitution, that kind of thing. And to be in a new city, Las Vegas, I knew we had to be better. The story of this founding and how Chen confronted his image problem is a telling commentary on the direction that other Chinatowns are headed. I could say that my nostalgia for the past is what spurs me to seek out Chinatown wherever I go, but I think that's only part of it. I don't go there for the same reasons my grandparents did. I grew up around the fringes of the neighborhood and the insularity and the security of their community never existed for me. They sought out Chinatown for the comfort of a place where people still spoke the same language they did, where they could simply feel at ease In a still strange country it was a sort of homecoming hong kong and china were places i would travel to not from though it's nice every once in a while to hear cantonese and eat food that i know well rice porridge and egg custard when i want to be reminded of my mom soy sauce chicken when i want to be reminded of my grandfather my fascination with chinatowns has more to do with being able to see how other Chinese communities integrate into their larger surrounding communities. By looking at the distinctive American Chinatowns of New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and Honolulu, fingers of land on the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, key entry points for multiple generations of Chinese immigrants to the United States, alongside that of Las Vegas, I find unlikely intersections of the new and familiar. Chinatowns of as we have known them are captivating places to explore. By digging deeper into a group of iconic Chinatowns in important cities across the United States, we get a sharper, more profound sense of immigrant experiences that are specific to place. As we take a look at several different generations in each, We also find out what it is that prevails in culture and tradition across the diaspora and in examining diverse stories that include those of a newer, unusual Chinese enclave in Las Vegas we create a moving picture of a population that has always flourished in community form. Of course, these are not the only stories, nor are they meant to be wholly representative of every Chinatown. Rather, they are simply points of view, compelling ones that show us new ways of seeing the Chinese in America today. Part One, The Oldest, San Francisco American Pagodas, Behind the Tourist Architecture On my first visit to the city by the Bay's famous Chinatown, I was reminded of Disney World. Here were multi-level pagoda tops, sharply curving eaves and orientalized cornices, decorating everything from the bank to the school to the McDonald's. Brightly colored lanterns and flags hung liberally and trolley cars running down one of its streets added to what seemed to me a straight-from-old-China amusement park air. The big dragon welcome gate at Grant Avenue, the main drag, actually did come from the Far East, a gift from Taiwan, but in 1969, not 1869. No imperial period importation, but a contemporary of the civil rights era and Woodstock. It was just before the united states under nixon famously extended the olive branch to the communist china in the 1970s acknowledging their political position that there was only one china and that taiwan was part of that state but most of chinatown comprised of immigrants with memories of escaping the communist takeover of china to come to the united states in the first place remained loyal to the nationalist government that had fled to, and remained in, Taiwan. It was in that era that my father himself first came to San Francisco's Chinatown, from Hong Kong in 1968. The trip was his first to America, indeed, his first experience with an American Chinatown. And when I ask him what he remembers, About that time, he says, it was the neighborhood's distinctively old look that struck him most. He wondered how Chinatown in a supposedly modern America could seem even older than the oldest parts of Hong Kong's historic Kowloon district. Shouldn't an American Chinatown be ultra-urban, with the tall buildings and gleaming metropolitan feel of his home's, city's, commercial center? instead it was ornamented with a kind of chinese flourishes that hadn't been used in china for decades plus it looked run down crowded and dirty what was it he wondered that kept the chinese neighborhood from looking like all the rest of san francisco the same small high density buildings jumble of sidewalk stalls and xenophilic streetscapes that my father saw as a new immigrant in 1968 are what we have come to know as characteristic of San Francisco's iconic Chinatown. But dig into its history and you'll find that the authentic Chinese look is a fabricated one. Its self-stylization actually begun only a century ago, when the 1906 earthquake leveled the original Chinatown and presented an opportunity for city developers to force the relocation of the Chinese American community and claim the valuable real estate that the neighborhood occupied. Let us have no more Chinatowns in our cities, read the Oakland Enquirer on April 23rd, 1906, five days after the quake hit. It wasn't until this point that the Chinatown familiar to us came to take shape. The oriental city of veritable fairy palaces was a conscious east-meets-west attempt by Chinese merchants to change the community's image from that of a vice-filled slum and ensure its continuing survival as, in part, an attractive tourist draw. The reading of the physical attributes of this Chinatown, the nation's oldest, can tell us surprising things about its history In the same year of my father's arrival, Chinatown residents were rebelling against the neighborhood establishment for promoting tourism while neglecting social reforms that would benefit the community. The exoticization that saved the neighborhood in the past became fuel for protest. In black and white photos of a 1968 Chinatown demonstration, young radicals rejected the old guard with signs that lampooned a dated way of thinking keep grant ave narrow dirty and quaint for tourists looking for an exotic place to live come join our community rats overcrowding poverty roaches preserve chinatown's uniqueness highest tv rates no unions the most suicides lowest wages when i began to look into the hist- into the story behind the neighborhood's deliberate tourist architecture and the social currents that led to its subsequent renewal everyone i asked about it in this chinatown and outside of it pointed to philip p troy phil troy is an old timer born in chinatown in 1926 and raised there He is an architect and historian who, along with fellow Chinese-American studies pioneer Him Mark Lai, taught the first college-level Chinese-American history course in the country in 1969. The reading of the Chinatown skyline to determine what it could reveal about the people's history within the district was also a perspective of his innovation. Many academics operate at some remove from their subjects, but Choi's connection is intensely personal. Throughout his lifetime, he has been a conscious observer of the sweeping changes that have happened in the neighborhood where he grew up. When we met, Choi was, at 81, a calm, well-spoken man with a head of white hair and a mustache to match. Years of teaching have given him a strong, measured way of talking, and he knows his opinions. He is candid with his stories and experiences in Chinatown, and as a Chinese-American encountering racism over an all too recent span of the 20th century. Together with Lai, his novel accomplishment is to have documented Chinatown and Chinese-American history when there was no such discipline. I'm just plain Phil, he told me when I visited him, but I can tell you all about Chinatown and its evolution. Choi is an architect by training. He designed and built the modern light-filled house he lives in today with his wife, Sarah, about five blocks northwest of Chinatown, but he says his interest has always been in the history of the Chinese in America. It was when civil rights arrived in Chinatown in the 60s that Choi began to take on his most important role as an interpreter of history. By that time, though he was working in an architecture firm, mostly designing restaurants and homes, and living outside of Chinatown, he had become actively involved with the neighborhood's Chinese Historical Society, which was founded in 1968. I mean, 63. The physical condition of Chinatown created a context for rebellion to flourish within the community's youth. Due to more relaxed immigration laws in the 1960s, a flood of new immigrants had begun to populate the area and a gap had opened up between the conservative old guard and a younger generation who agitated for higher wages, cleaner streets, better schools, equipped to educate non-English speaking kids and more and better housing for the poor. They criticized the Chinatown establishment for not confronting the real issues of Chinatown, for maintaining the status quo, maintaining its isolation, and maintaining the decades of well-behaved good Chinese who never rocked the boat, Choi said. The conservative elements who ran the community for so long looked upon these young people as rabble-rousers who were bringing disgrace to Chinatown. Like the rest of the nation, Chinatown was burning for change. And it was 1968, the year of Chinatown protest, when my father observed a blighted, dilapidated neighborhood that students at San Francisco State College, now San Francisco State University, drew national attention by staging the third world student strike in support of establishing an ethnic studies program there. A vacuum of knowledge about the ethnic community became painfully apparent. When San Francisco State came calling in the wake of the student strike to ask if anyone at the Historical Society would want to teach a class, Choi and Mark Lai realized that they knew things no one else knew about. For me, it was a moment of enlightenment, Choi said. Who would help give the students information and a good dose of history, because up until that point, nobody really knew how much nobody really knew much about the background of the Chinese in America. They held classes back to back. The original class syllabus is still heavily referenced today by teachers in the school's Asian American Studies Department, but nonetheless there was over enrollment. That was the period when Chinese-American students were angry, but they didn't know what they were angry about, Choi said. They didn't know why they were second-class citizens. They didn't know why their parents were so passive. There was a lot of resentment. In other words, they needed someone to put their lives in the context of something larger than themselves. Choi's own life gave him useful perspectives that he could pass on to his students. As a boy growing up in Chinatown in the nineteen thirties, he felt a cloud of insecurity over the area, a feeling of illegality that he got from listening to his parents talk. We had a very common saying in Chinese Mo Duk Choi Di Fan Gui Don't offend the white people. When you were getting into trouble or when you were not behaving, you were always being admonished not to offend the white people. My father, being an illegal immigrant, there was always the possibility of investigations and they were always afraid. The 1906 earthquake had destroyed a huge chunk of the city's birth and immigration records. Like hundreds, perhaps thousands of other paper sons, Choi's father had come into the United States by purchasing false American birth documents. After the quake, Chinese already in the United States could claim citizenship and they could also claim children born in China as American citizens. These identities, real or false, could be sold to others for a profit. The numbers were impossible to trace, but a 1957 New Yorker article reported that if all claims of burned birth certificates were true, every Chinese woman living in San Francisco before 1906 had had 800 sons. Choi himself had only moved out of Chinatown in the mid 1950s after laws were changed to allow Chinese to buy property outside of Chinatown. He could explain the fears and inaction of a certain Chinatown generation to his students. He could describe the insularity and self-protection of his parents' generation, a conservative sector of the community that was still afraid to socialize with whites. And he could also go beyond the immediate past and take the long view, contextualizing the life of Chinese America, within the larger history of America. That, he says, has always been his goal. A major perspective of Choi's on Chinatown has been through its buildings. One of his earliest earliest memories involves borrowing Charles Caldwell Dovey's San Francisco's Chinatown from the library. Published in 1936, it was one of the first general history books written about Chinatown. Choi admired the pencil illustrations in the volume, and carried the book from street corner to street corner, comparing each drawing to the actual subject. Afterward, he tried his own hand at sketching the houses and schools and stores that populated his daily life. From the library and his architect's study, he pulled down a copy of Dobie's Chinatown and showed me its well-preserved pages. If you know the buildings, you know the history, he said, flicking past drawings of the Chinese school he attended as a youth. We're always considered foreigners, generation after generation. But look at the evidence. There is a story to be told, and it is that the community of Chinatown has been here since the founding of San Francisco itself. In the buildings of Chinatown, Choi sees the social climate, in which the modern community took shape. With his background in architecture, Choi brought together under scrutiny the two major characteristics that have established San Francisco Chinatown so firmly in the American imagination, its long history, and the hybrid Sino-American architecture unique to it. The Chinese had been coming to San Francisco in large numbers since 1848, When word of the California gold rush reached Guangdong, a region that was being ravaged by civil war, drought, and famine, they called California San Gold Mountain. In the following decades, Chinese immigrants, mostly Cantonese male peasants from the countryside, settled in the United States by the thousands to build the railroad and to work as farmers. By 1870, there were about 63,000 Chinese in America, more than three quarters of them in California. Many had formed powerful family and business associations to protect their interests and help newcomers settle into the country. Despite these facts, Choi has written, visitors to Chinatown today continue to see Chinatown as an unassimilated foreign community where traditional culture and architecture dominate and are mere transplants from China. In their haste to view Chinatown as an exotic oasis, Choi says, most fail to understand the true history of the community that is bound up in its buildings. I only have to think back to my most recent visit to Chinatown, cameras clicking on every block slow walking tourists showing a pervasive fascination with the colorful, festive atmosphere, to see his point. Hundreds of thousands of visitors come to Chinatown every year, seeking authenticity and cultural flavor. As Troy has written, these exotics take on a different meaning upon the discovery that the appearance of Chinatown today is due in large part To Chinese merchants who, after the 1906 earthquake, paid white architects to come up with an oriental look that would be appealing and acceptable to a general public, that had come to view the Chinese with racist eyes. In his telling of Chinatown, Choi first points to the fact that Chinatown before the quake had a largely western appearance. Consult pre-1906 drawings, photos, and literature, he says and brick houses and Italianate Victorian facades and balconies dominate. When I researched old images of San Francisco Chinatown, I found street scenes of wood shingled residences with awnings, cobbled streets, and horse drawn carriages, discernibly Chinese only in decorative signs and details. After white residents moved out of Chinatown in favor of newer, more affluent neighborhoods in San Francisco, the Chinese occupied their vacated buildings. Architecturally, Chinatown of the latter 19th century was a typical American frontier settlement, only with Chinese characters. But even before the earthquake, Troy says, many of the Chinese wanted to change their image. By 1854, California laws had been put in place to ensure that violence against Chinese immigrants, which was already on the uptick, could not be prosecuted in court. In 1882, the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed, the first US law ever to ban immigration based on race or nationality, and it would not be repealed until 1943 when China became an ally to the United States in World War II. That period became known as the Exclusion Era. Though the law exempted merchants, travelers, students, and those born in the United States, most Chinese left in America were essentially in limbo. They couldn't vote, they couldn't reunite with their families, and their rights were not protected. Legal residents could not become citizens. Racism was rampant. At the time of the quake, the immoral Chinatown presented by anti-Chinese forces, the one filled with gambling, prostitution, opium dens, and cheap labor competition needed to be replaced by a better face and fast, since the San Francisco Board of Supervisors had increasingly threatened the community with forcible removal. The opening of the earth at 5.12 a.m. on April 18th, 1906, became the moment for reinvention. Soon afterward, the specifics of Chinatown's new construction were determined by Chinese merchants, Luke Tin Eli and Tong Bong, who hired the architect engineer team of T. Patterson Ross and A.W. Berggren to build the Sing Fat Ko building in the Sing Chong Ko Chinese Bazaar. From an architectural point of view, The buildings are mediocre, Choi says. What was the first thing they thought of in Chinese architecture? The pagoda. So immediately that becomes the model for the building. They turned up roofs, made the curlicues, and so on. Basically, they were taking a lot of standard architectural ornaments and creating a new vernacular, neither Chinese nor American, neither East nor West. It's just a figment of the imagination of a white architect. But what's important is that it tells us a story of what happened, why these buildings came about, and it was because we were promoting our ethnicity to please the white man at the time. It was self-preservation. One weekend afternoon, I walked to the intersection of Grant Avenue and California Street. It's a corner where people in SUVs cruise by and hang out the window to snap photos of the landmark Sing Fat and Sing Chong buildings. Those two edifices that exemplify the reinvention of Chinatown at the turn of the twentieth century. The pagoda stacked Sing Chong first housed a dry goods shop. The ground floor has since been home to a McDonald's, and is now the Chinatown food court next door the asian image boutique sells art across the street the sing fat is a plain brown brick building with green stone detailing and a plopped on pagoda cap painted in red green and yellow it's retail windows trumpet fine jewelry everything 70 percent off on this main tourist drag traffic is predominantly non-chinese Groups of sightseers wait for the cable car to come pick them up, and other visitors sit on the steps of old St. Mary's Church, with maps to plot their next moves. One hundred years later, the architecture of Luk Tin, Eli, and Ross and Berggren, literally Chinese-American, in that it was invented in the laboratory of this American Chinatown, has been an unqualified success at attracting outside visitors. It was purposely done by the insider to promote our ethnicity, choices. Architecture is not just a happening or stereotyping. The people of that generation were trying to prove their ethnicity and change their image as the good versus the slum. They were promoting and earning the goodwill of the outside community with this nice looking oriental village. Today we promote our ethnicity in Chinatown with a certain purpose as well. Tourism dollars have transformed Grant Avenue, once the main functioning thoroughfare of Chinatown, into a soulless yet lucrative retail drag, selling all things Asian themed. T-shirts, silk pajamas, tea sets but many measures, Choi says, were still doing the same thing. The initial post quake building frenzy in Chinatown succeeded in pacifying the white authorities. On May 26, 1910, the Washington Post ran an ad declaring that the gilded domes of her pagodas add striking features to the beauty of the new city. Choi's colleague at San Francisco State, Marlon Home, has called the stylizing of Chinatown an ingenious move, selling a fake China to white folks who didn't know any better. But it was all for self-preservation. In the years following, Chinatown turned inward. In a 1997 PBS documentary on Chinatown, filmmaker Felicia Lowe dramatized the human fact of the ghetto. Throughout history, Chinatown provided for itself what the outside world would not. By the 1930s, an entire parallel community had grown in the dozen square blocks of Chinatown, with its own schools, hospital, nightclubs, and marching bands. There was even a Chinese telephone exchange called the China Five. In the 30s and 40s, benevolent and family associations continued to add more chinoiserie, and renowned architect Julia Morgan built the Clay Street YWCA with inspiration from Chinese forms. Building remained static in Cathay by the Bay through the 50s, but the influx of a new population in the 60s, after the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act, lifted country quotas and once again allowed fast Chinese immigration of the scale, seen before exclusion, forced a crowding issue. Modernization and increasing rents took apart and shifted the streetscape again, this time with neon signs and big glass storefronts. When I asked Choi why he thought it was important to know that the Chinatown skyline was created not by accident, but by design. He was silent for a long minute. Finally, he admitted that he continues to see a lot of work about Chinatown by non-Chinese, writing that doesn't have much to do with Chinatown itself. Most concentrated on the symbolism of design features, he says, not the building themselves or the history thereof. The creation of modern chinatown was done by chinese who had already built long lives there and been there since the beginning he says and it is valuable to know the truth about why it was done in the first place as a response to racism the feeling he had growing up was that the chinese stay in the united states was not a welcome one that hostile cultural environment gave rise to the sojourner mentality, the expectation that many Chinese had of ultimately returning to China. In his lifetime, he is grateful to see that his children and grandchildren don't have the problems he faced. As China continues to ascend on the world stage, especially on the heels of its extraordinary 2008 Beijing Olympics coming out party, the younger generations are more likely to feel pride than shame in their heritage. But knowing what happened, he says, is a reminder of why his own generation was spurred to activism. Even today, people don't really understand the history. They quote dates and events, Choi said. And it is hard to understand the history of the Chinese in America without recognizing the depth of anti-Chinese virulence they faced from the beginning. They were lynched for accepting so-called starvation wages during the gold rush. Their settlements were burned. The intensity of that racism was what inspired California to pioneer the kinds of laws that eventually led to the US ban on Chinese immigration in 1882. Chinatown, then, was at the same time a forest ghetto and a safe haven. Knowing this reveals something of why Chinatown is the way it is today. By drawing on his own experience, Choi offers an exploration of Chinatown's history as the history of the city itself, warts and all. Its migrations, social geography, urban development, and longtime anti-Chinese climate. Marking the significance of the connection between Chinatown history and American history, he says, is something he has tried his whole life to do. Up until Dopey's Chinatown, Choi says, little was written about or by the Chinese in America. There were not many Chinese writers at the time, since most Chinese were busy finding the limited blue-collar work available to them. Since the ethnic awakening of the 1960s, however, there are countless histories, plays, and novels by Chinese Americans concerning their experiences. Choi's childhood friend and co-teacher, him Mark Lai, went on to build an unrivaled personal archive of papers relating to Chinese American history. His soon-to-be-digitized collection is particularly noted for Chinese-language media, published in America. The modern wave can certainly be attributed in part to Lai and Phil Choi's academic efforts to shape the discipline of Chinese-American studies as it exists today. Choi has been retired from formal architectural practice for about 10 years, but he continues to write and curate exhibitions for the Chinese Historical Society, a permanent gallery in the museum there is named for him. On a large work table in his study at home, Choi was finishing a book on the history of the Chinese in Sacramento. One of the photos in the manuscript was of his grandfather's meat market shop where Choi himself once worked. I'm an accomplished butcher, you know, he said with a smile. I can break up a beef into all of its parts. Throughout his sunlit home, the walls and tables showcase an impressive array of art, including several works by Juan Miro illustrations by a favorite contemporary American artist. While taking me on a tour of his collection, Choi assured me that he doesn't just collect things that are Chinese and jade miniatures. There are also 19th century engravings of political cartoons depicting the Chinese in America. His 1994 book, The Coming Man, written with Marilyn Holm and Lorraine Dong, is a detailed survey of this collection and the era's visual consideration of Chinese immigrants. Upstairs, a family gallery features old portraits, sittings of his parents, and more recent photos of his three children and five grandchildren. He has come far from Chinatown, but he has not forgotten it. Choi's work in Chinatown still preoccupies him. In 1986, a proposal he worked on for landmark preservation of Chinatown as a historic district was rejected by the city. But I was actually a little bit relieved, Choi said. Many preservationists are of a mind to arrest an historic district in terms of the buildings. They think of it as a museum. Therefore, you can't change or touch anything. While Chinatown is still living, it's still growing and progressing, and it has a lot of needs. So you can't all of a sudden stop it and make it stand still. The tension between the city's concept of historical preservation and his own, he said, is something I have grappled with for a long time. In modern day Chinatown, the skyline continues to figure significantly into the survival of the neighborhood. Zoning has restricted high rise development. And according to local historian Judy Young, after 30 community organizations that rose out of the youth activism of the 1970s and 1980s now address the economic and social needs of Chinatown. It was after another big earthquake in 1989, when Norman Fong, a prominent community leader and a director of the nonprofit Chinatown Community Development Center, or CCDC, was asked by a popular Hong Kong magazine if he thought Chinatown was going to disappear. What, in light of thriving neighborhoods like Oakland, Chinatown, and satellite Chinatowns, like the Richmond and the Sunset, made this Chinatown any different. What makes it different is the history, Fong said decisively when he related this story to me. This is Heartland, Asian America. People feel a connection with this community, and in fact, it increases their identification as Chinese American. As long as people care, Chinatown is going to be around. Recently, Fong came up with the idea to affix bronze plates in the shape of monkey paw prints around Chinatown's newly improved alleyways as a way to track family legacies in the neighborhood. Different families, including Fong's own, have bought plates to honor their heritage and roots here. The paw prints are a physical expression of pride, in many ways, a reclamation of the physical space of Chinatown, from tourists, for residents. Norman Fong says that he shares Phil Choi's passion for the history of their neighborhood. But he also emphasizes that they both think it is the low-income immigrants who actually live here that deserve the highest priority. To accommodate these residents, the skyline needs to shift again. Economically, some of the family associations, they really want to turn it into a tourist place, Feng said, citing the continuing battle between Chinatown interests. More restaurants, more offices. They think we don't need this poor housing here. We should get rid of it all and do all high-rises. But even though the housing is so crappy, even though the people are real poor, we have a jam-packed community that adds vitality and life here. What is the uniqueness of Chinatown? Tan Chow, a Chinatown community organizer, asked me. It's the street life. A skyscraper that casts a big shadow on Chinatown's main square has serious consequences for a community that spends most of its time there, he says. Getting developers to defer to how people in the community actually live is not easy. But advocates like Chow can draw from the tradition that Phil Choi has set down. Choi agrees that it's the immigrants who keep this place alive. As he is accustomed to doing he looks both behind and ahead to illustrate his case. As far as the life of Chinatown is concerned, a continuing influx of people will sustain a Chinatown, he says. Your first generation sustains the culture and the habits. Your second generation becomes more affluent as they move out. Once people stop living there, the fate of Chinatown is to disappear. That was what was happening in the 50s, because of the embargo on trade with China, and also people like myself moving out, after all, because we didn't want to raise our children there. It is because of the post-1965 wave of immigration that Chinatown is still vital. But Choi says the conditions are not a choice for those who live there. It is still basically a slum area beyond the facade of some of the festivities and so on. It's kind of ironic. The new immigrants are the ones who are sustaining Chinatown, and we want to improve life for them. But if there isn't a continuing influx of the less affluent, then the Chinatown itself Becomes merely ornamental. But, I asked him, what do you make of the fact that Chinatown still holds deep importance for Chinese Americans, whatever generation they may be? My perspective is that my generation has spent our whole lives trying to get the hell out of there, so I have a different kind of attachment to Chinatown than many of the young kids today, Choi says. It's through our conversations that I understand more fully the reasons each generation has for being here. Chinatown today fulfills two essential needs as a spiritual and historical touchstone for older generations, and as a physical home for new immigrants. I've been involved in the community and its welfare, but certainly not to preserve it as a ghetto. In fact, Everything we do is in the hope that the poor will be able to get out of this area, Choi says. The way I want to preserve it is by making a statement that we've been here, using it as evidence, using it as important piece of history. He taps his hand on the table for emphasis. It's not a contradiction. Alloway kids how youth is reinvigorating the neighborhood. As I approached Chinatown's Portsmouth Square one afternoon, the ground seemed to vibrate. School groups marched through like trains passing through a station. Kids screamed from the two playgrounds, passing between the sand pit on the square's lower level and the bigger play area on the upper floor True to this Chinatown's characteristic architecture, even the green and purple play structures have pagoda-shaped swish tops. Mothers and babysitters sat together. Local office workers ate their lunches in the sun, kicking away pigeons as they chewed. Elderly men clustered around park benches, and played brisk games of cards and mahjong while others quietly observed the action from a few feet away, hands folded behind backs with a casual grace. Some seniors made slow loops around the square, greeting familiars. Have you eaten yet? To each visit, they brought their Chinese newspapers and gossip. Everywhere, I saw people clutching red plastic bags containing the day's shopping. From a flagpole in the square, 23-year-old Rosa Wong-Chi glanced at the upper-level playground. It is one of her self-proclaimed favorite places, a diversion that for years occupied the greater part of her childhood summers. She turned and squinted into the sunlight, smiling at me as I joined a group of visitors assembled in front of her. Welcome to Chinatown's living room, she told us. When I first met her, Rosa Wong-Chi was the newly minted coordinator for Chinatown Alleyway Tours, a program in which high school and college kids who grew up in Chinatown launch walking tours around the neighborhood. The general premise of the outings, she told me, is to take guests off the dim sum path and explore the history and modern day life of the San Francisco community through five of its key alleyways. Though she now manages the youth initiatives, Rosa began, just like everyone else, as a high school volunteer. A small, slight girl with glasses and hair often pulled back in a ponytail, Rosa has a serious look and a commanding voice, though in the way of young people, Her sentences occasionally end with the upward tilt of a question mark. She speaks quickly and tells neighborhood stories from memory. It might not be her own memory, she was after all born in 1984, but she draws from a collective memory of Chinatown in a way that is both earnest and encyclopedic. That afternoon, as she walked down a set of stairs to the street level, She kept up a running commentary of some of the key neighborhood stories she has internalized over the years. Portsmouth Square is not only the center of Chinatown, but served as the first town square in Yerba Buena, the settlement that would become San Francisco. 60% of Chinatown's housing is composed of crowded, single-room occupancy apartments, or SROs, which partly accounts for why everyone is outside in Portsmouth using the public space. The struggle for low-income affordable housing for Chinatown's seniors and families continues even today, though the 104 apartments in the newly rebuilt I-Hotel, from which elderly residents were infamously evicted in 1977, are finally triumphantly open for business. The alleyway program helps youth leaders work on public speaking abilities, as well as their skills in history and research within the community. Beyond this, she added, young guides see the tours as a chance to clear up misconceptions about the place where they grew up. From Chinatown's living room, we followed Rosa, youth program colleague Tim Ho and 17-year-old guide Jason Tong on a two-hour survey of its front yards and backyards, The narrow lanes that have long served as shortcuts for neighborhood residents who want to avoid crowds on main thoroughfares like Stockton Street or Grant Avenue. These alleyways are quick routes for both cars and people, Rosa explained as two delivery vans rolled by her, and a mother and child squeezed hurriedly through the remaining space. She pointed out Spofford Alley, the one that contains the cramped SRO apartment in which she grew up. Jason jokingly called it Rose's Alley. Actually, she said, I call it my playground. In many Chinatowns across the United States, Youth exodus is the norm. The things that many visitors find unpleasant about Chinatown, its crowded feel, dirty streets, are the same factors that spur residents to leave once they can afford to. Despite its splashy outward facade as a popular tourist destination, San Francisco's Chinatown is a place where, internally, most residents skirt the poverty line, This dichotomy makes it what the historian Judy Young has called a gilded ghetto. Here, the cycle of immigrants is still a revolving door. A constant flow of families moving out and newer immigrant families moving in to take advantage of cheap rents and neighborhood services. Conditions have gotten dramatically better in the last two decades, but some in the community worry that young people who grow up here fail to return and contribute meaningfully to its continuing improvement. That return, they say, is key to the neighborhood's survival. A lot of kids who move out, they will come back to Chinatown because of the cheap food. That's what they always tell me, Rosa says with a laugh. They hang out here either because it's close to their house or because their friends live here or their school is around here, or because they go to Chinese school. Maybe their parents work here. So there are a lot of reasons why they're in Chinatown, but those that have more knowledge and a deeper connection, they're the ones who really incorporate Chinatown into their lives after they grow up. Norman Fong says that very few people have stayed in the neighborhood to do empowerment work. As a boy in the 1960s, Fong ran around with a Chinatown gang. Everybody needed to be a part of a gang then. There was a lot of racism going on that the cops could care less about. He says he has always valued young people. I valued myself as a youth, even when society didn't really value youth. I've always felt that youth power was not really respected or understood, especially in the Asian community, where reverence for seniors is very important. A short, stocky fireball of a man with shaggy hair, he still seems to be a big kid himself, despite his age. At the time we met, he was 55. He has become, if not a father figure, then a big, a sort of big brother figure to kids in the community. A minister in the San Francisco Presbytery for more than 25 years, Fung also serves as a parish associate for the Presbyterian Church of Chinatown. Many people in Chinatown address him as Rev. He founded CCDC's Adopt an Alleyway, or AAA, read as AAA, Youth Project in 1991 to jumpstart the 30 year old organization's youth based initiatives. Previously, he had He had been in charge of the youth program at Cameron House, a Chinatown community organization that was originally founded in 1874 as a Christian mission home for Chinese women and girls. To satisfy the demands of a mostly male Chinatown population, during the exclusion era, thousands of Chinese women and girls were smuggled into San Francisco. AAA began with a group of eight high school kids and Fong who asked them what they wanted to change in the neighborhood. I said, this is your turf, Feng told me. This is your home too, no matter where you live now. Chinatown is the birthplace of Asian America. Tell me what you don't like about it, and what should be better. And they kind of focused on the alleyways. They said, alleyways stink really bad. The city doesn't take care of them. When Feng called San Francisco's Department of Public Works, he was appalled to find that the city still had not integrated Chinatown's alleyways into its plans for maintenance and sanitation. This was the 90s, Feng said, shaking his head at the memory. And here we were, still getting screwed. Push the garbage to Sacramento Street, they told him, I push it to Washington or another one of the main streets, and then we'll pick pick it up since cars drove through them all the time. The alleys were not really private lanes, in which case the responsibility for cleanup would have fallen on the landlords but the d p w foisted responsibility on the landlords anyway, who similarly negligent pointed fingers right back. The eight students began doing alleyway patrols every Friday after school, adopting a several-block area, and dividing it into four regions. They walked the blocks, learned the history, and recorded what they saw. Finally, Fung says, they got smart. They invited a local newspaper reporter to walk around with them as they graded the alleyways. The next thing we knew, Chinese TV was coming along with us and all this press happened, Feng says. Youth get graded by society. They have the right to grade back. That was the principle behind it. The youth group started recruiting Chinese clubs in high schools around the city to come and do alleyway and graffiti cleanups in Chinatown, and the social network continued to grow. In 1995, Feng worked with Chasmin Ka, a student at the University of California at Berkeley, who did her thesis on Chinatown's alleyways, to draw up a Chinatown master plan, an analysis of all the alleyways that led the city to adopt them for maintenance. We got it, Feng says. We won. It was a victory. So, for the youth, I tell them this and I might exaggerate just a little bit. AAA is the story of the greatest youth movement in Chinatown. Basically, San Francisco screwed the Chinese community as they have for many years, and they helped to turn it around. They earned a piece of it for themselves. The alleyway tours followed later in 2000, with each student personalizing a tour with his or her own experiences and favorite stories from the neighborhood, many of which originated with Fong, who used to lead his own excursions through Chinatown. I love Norman, Rosa told me, adding that she thinks that he is a really cool guy. Fong's street cred comes from growing up in Chinatown. He is a third generation Chinese American His father came through Angel Island Immigration Station, where many Chinese were infamously detained and deported. And his effectiveness clearly stems from a tireless championing of the neighborhood. He is still considered a Chinatown boy. He rarely sleeps. His college-age son, Micah, says that his father has more energy than he does. When I asked Rosa why she thinks Norman puts such a premium on keeping the youth engaged in the community, she said it is because he wants to keep Chinatown alive and in good shape for many years to come. I think part of it definitely is definitely because the youth is the future. He always starts out with a story. What better way to keep Chinatown clean than to have students, involvement, to shame the merchants and shame the government about it. That's how he started the program. He really believes that youth should have a voice in everything, and it shouldn't just be about adults. That's one of his big, big priorities. Inside Wo, a narrow, three-level Chinese restaurant on the corner of Grand Avenue and Washington Street that became legendary in the 1980s after San Francisco Chronicle columnist Herb Kane wrote about its histrionically rude waiter, Ed Silphong. The subject of math came over a noodle lunch I had with Rosa and Tim Ho. My sister is two years older than me, Tim said. He, like Rosa, was born in 1984. So, she was born in 1986, I asked. Silence, then laughter. Tim pointed at his gray t-shirt, which read in red block letters, I suck at math. It's our stand to disprove the idea that all Asian Americans are good at math, because the stereotype is that we're all geniuses at it, Tim explained, running a hand through his spiky black hair. We should get you a t-shirt, too." I was, I admit, strangely flattered. A decade ago, Tim didn't have a particular affinity for Chinatown, despite the fact that it was where he spent all of his time playing basketball and hanging out with his friend. His family lived in an SRO for a few years before moving to the outskirts of the neighborhood but they continued to come back every day. If you only know Chinese, where else are you going to go? Tim asked, playing with his chopsticks. My daycare was at Commodore Stockton, the main Chinatown elementary school now named Gordon J. Lau, after a local civil rights and community leader. And I hung out at Chinese playground every day. My whole life was here, except for high school. At 14, he was neither proud of being Chinese nor ashamed, but it was something that made him feel different from many of his classmates. There was, he says, a sense of dislocation. You don't see many Asians on television. And when you do, you don't see them as normal human beings. You see them flying, kicking, and punching. How does an Asian-American kid grow up normal without seeing a person familiar, si- similar to himself or herself as a normal human being? And when immigrant parents have different ideals and morals that clash with the American lifestyle, kids feel like they don't fit in even more. These feelings have a compelling echo across the generations. Growing up in this community, you only saw certain things that you were proud of and not proud of, Norman Fong told me. He remembers an era of black power and civil rights organization, and for a long time, a lack of identity and self-respect in his own community. Your parents you're not that proud of because they're immigrants or they're not wealthy, so you end up rebelling a lot of different ways. One of the main reasons Tim says that he and Rosa continue to be active in Chinatown, even after graduating from high school and even after their families moved out of the neighborhood, is that they learned about themselves by working in the community. Tim attended a small alternative high school called Wallenberg in the Richmond district an Asian-American neighborhood north of Golden Gate Park that is sometimes described as a satellite second Chinatown, albeit a wealthier one. But he credits his education through the youth program in the history and community of Chinatown for giving his life experience there a real meaningful context. The Chinese kids at Wallenberg from that neighborhood they have a lot more money than me and Rosa, and they never had the need to go to Chinatown for childcare or anything. Their parents own stores on Clément or somewhere else in the Richmond. They didn't feel the same type of associations for Chinatown that I do, not just for the area, but for the people. A deeper sense of connection, the sense, Tim says, that there is just so much history that could all be forgotten is crucial to getting beyond the physical push and pull of Chinatown. He says his peers at Wallenberg didn't see the point of Chinatown. They felt that it was just a dirty place, too crowded, with a lot of pushing and shoving from grannies and grandpas. It didn't mean anything beyond that to them. For them, it wasn't a real place. Tim and Rosa's work in Chinatown has not been without its high points. Tim was an extra in a Spike Lee movie once, Rosa told me proudly. How did the director manage to find him, I asked. It was easy. He asked us to do a tour for him, Tim said, laughing. And when he mentioned that he needed some young people as extras, I told him I might be able to help him out. The waitress brought bowls of steaming noodles and wonton soup, and plates of fried vegetable rolls and curry chicken with rice. The widely sto- told story of Edsel Fong, which made Sam Wo famous citywide, is simply a tourist tale now, one before Rosa and Tim's time. To them, Sam Wo is a good place for cheap noodles a restaurant that's open late and has quiet tables on the third floor. They make their own memories here. In between slurps, Rosa compared the kids Tim described to some of the tourists she sees coming into Chinatown, who think that the neighborhood is just for their benefit. I remember having a tour group and telling them that Chinatown is a mixed community, that the bottom is the commercial The top is the residential, and I pointed out the places where people would go to go into their buildings. And they're like, oh wow, I didn't even know that this is how people live. So people without a sense of connection probably think that Chinatown is just a tourist attraction too. Rosa says that the history of Chinatown makes her proud. Okay, well, some parts of the history make me proud, and some parts make me so mad about society, she said. She laughed at her own intensity. Like, the reason why Chinatown existed in the first place is racism. People weren't allowed to leave. It was a ghetto, so the community had to survive on its own. The history taught me to be proud of my own community. I think that if people didn't have a sense of pride, then they don't care about the community. I think that's maybe why some of the students that Tim was talking about, and maybe some of my high school peers don't understand. Some people, even the students living in Chinatown, if they don't get the history themselves, they probably feel the same way. Even if they live here and hang out here, they just see the bad conditions nothing else the crowdedness, all the negative stuff and none of the positive it overshadows the good stuff that's the reason why my parents moved to Visitation Valley a growing Chinese American neighborhood in the southern part of San Francisco my sister and I were in high school and I was just about to go to college we thought that Chinatown was too crowded for us but they come back all the time to go to the bank for groceries because it's cheaper, because everyone can speak Chinese with them. It still matters. Rosa Wong-Chi's experiences living in SROs as a kid have shaped her interest in housing issues in particular. Rosa was a senior at Galileo High School when I first met her, Jane Kim, CCDC's former youth coordinator, told me. The alleyway tours began under Kim's tenure. She wasn't the most outspoken young person. We had a lot of guides who were funny and many who were outgoing. But Rosa has an ability to convey genuineness that people really connect to. And because she grew up in one of the alleyways, it gave her an added level of authenticity on the tour. One of the major issues in Chinatown is housing, and she really wanted to concentrate on that because she grew up in an SRO. It was something that most of her classmates didn't even know about. Though she no longer gives regular tours, Rosa still cuts through Spoford Alley. We walked there from her office and along the way, she pointed out childhood landmarks like her old Chinese school, now closed, and a favorite bakery. I asked her what it was like to live in such a crowded environment. One of her strongest early memories is of an SRO apartment on Grant Avenue in a building that had hundreds of units, a maze of hallways in which she would play tag or hide and seek with the other kids. She shared a bunk bed with her sister, in the same room as her parents, who shared another bunk bed. My grandmother was in there too, she said, and my aunt and uncle had another room with my cousin. It was really, really crowded. There was no space at all. I remember one time I was sitting on the floor because there were no chairs and I had a cup of water next to me. And my dad warned me not to knock it over, but I accidentally did. And then he started yelling at me and I started crying. She paused thinking, that's how I remember feeling about that room. She and her parents and younger sister eventually moved out of the Grant Avenue unit when the family found its own s r o in Spoford Alley, one with a slightly more one with slightly more space as a young girl, she despised having to take a shower since her unit had no bathroom, only a toilet. We had to share a shower with the other people on the floor, which I hated. I hated showering because I had to run to the bathroom and then come back to the room. She shuddered. I actually ended up showering a lot at my cousin's place because they had their own shower and bathroom and I could get privacy. At 34, Spofford Alley, we stared at the heavy metal door on the pink building for a moment before Rosa walked up and gave it a shove. It opened easily and she looked at me and laughed. Still no lock, she said, holding the door open so I could pass through we stood in the cramped entryway and she looked around at the broken mailboxes according to recent legislation in the city all buildings in chinatown must have working mailboxes it had been seven years since rosa lived here no she said it's not changed at all our voices echoed in the stairwell a middle-aged woman came down the stairs and squeezed past us and as the door closed again rosa pointed out its makeshift wood panel. Once, someone kicked through the bottom half, she said, and building management had boarded up the hole. It was still broken. As we clumped up the narrow stairs, Rosa noticed new lighting and a banister. There was also what appeared to be an earthquake retrofit, evidenced by patches of exposed beam and broken plaster. She explained to me that SRO residents are now classified as homeless by the city so that they can receive the same benefits, including food and public transportation assistance. The average SRO costs 350 to 600 per month for an 8 foot by 8 foot room. Two flights up, we quietly opened the thorough, throughway door to her old floor. That's the bathroom, Rosa said, her voice low pointing to the dark end of the hallway opposite from the street window. A wire running down the length of the hallway along the wall drooped under the weight of hangers laden with dry, drying laundry, bras and underwear, t-shirts, pants. The jury-rigged drying apparatus extended through the window to the fire escape, where more plastic hangers rattled in the light breeze. Stacks of shoes sat outside each of the four units At the dark end of the hall, a child's tricycle looked forlorn, as did a pair of tiny pink Hello Kitty sneakers, surfacing in a sea of adult-sized slippers. Rosa pointed out the one-room studio where she had lived. To show me how big it was, she used her arms to measure the width of the room from the outside against the stairwell hall. Basically, our bunk bed was from here to about here, leaving a little space for us to walk, she said, describing the plan of the room, as if she could see through walls. The entire width of the SRO apartment was equivalent to the span of her outstretched arms, plus another arm's length, somewhere shy of seven and a half feet. We eventually moved across the hall to this unit which was a lot better because it had a bathroom, she said, pointing to another wall and sketching the layout of a living room, bedroom, and kitchen with her hands. And the living room and then the bedroom, and the kitchen is on the side. The kitchen is like the size of this hallway, this wide, and I'm amazed because my mom put our desk in there. She laughed at the memory. So we were studying inside the bathroom and the kitchen the bathroom is partitioned off with a bathtub to the side and then there's a door for the toilet so you could use the bathtub area but someone else could use the toilet an elderly couple emerged from the unit at the front of the building and they eyed us as they opened the door to the stairs another man wandered into the hallway are you looking for a place to live he asked in cantonese Oh no, we're not, Rosa said, ducking her head. We headed for the stairwell and returned to the world outside. Later, I asked Rosa if she would ever want to live in Chinatown again. She says maybe. Her life is based around Chinatown, and it would be convenient. But now that I can afford to live somewhere else, then probably not, she told me thoughtfully, because I understand why people need to live here more than me. The life of a Chinatown kid in San Francisco reflects life in much of inner-city America. Crumbling, overcrowded apartment buildings, widespread poverty, and parents who often work late hours. It's a recipe for listlessness. But Chinatown also benefits uniquely from a thriving street life and a neighborhood that is today vastly cleaner and safer than it has been in the past. Like CCDC and Cameron House, Many other neighborhood programs try to keep a sense of community alive for young people. Otherwise there is no need for them to return or be involved. And youth is a crucial unifying force for change in this neighborhood. Chinatown is too divided. We have 155 different family associations and four different merchant groups, Fong says. Everyone has their own interests so sometimes it's hard to get that united front. Youth cross over that because everyone loves youth. Getting the kids who grow up here involved is really powerful. And at AAA meetings, the kids get to be in charge. On the second Friday of each month, a core cabinet of about 15 students meets to decide what projects the group wants to focus on for the next four weeks. At a recent meeting, the teenagers settled on an agenda of graffiti cleanups, a Sunday meeting to educate SRO residents in health and safety issues, and a tenant services event which Tim Ho helped to launch in 2002 to sort of sort of bridge the generation gap. Since many ed- elderly residents in Chinatown are somewhat disconnected from the world, Tim says, The students try to give a different energy to their day the last time we played bingo the seniors were very rowdy rosa told me they got really excited about the prizes we bought them at the 99 cent store but they loved it tupperware grocery bags vegetable drainers shower caddies good stuff she invited me to the next event it took place on a wednesday afternoon and when i arrived The community room at 777 Broadway was jumping. The activity was origami. Five long tables were filled with about 30 seniors and 20 students helped give demonstrations on folding various paper creations cranes, frogs, hearts, flowers, collapsible boxes. Carmen, a self-assured sweet-voiced sophomore who seemed older than 16, made announcements about the afternoon's activities in Cantonese, while Darwin, a shy boy in a blue shirt, made the same announcements in English. A dull roar of audience chatter nearly drowned him out. His baseball-capped grandfather, a resident in the building, ambled in to say hello. Mrs. Lau, white-haired and in a purple paisley blouse and matching purple fleece, sat across from Sarah, a thin girl with bangs, zebra-striped nails, and a fur-trimmed hood. Sarah was new to the program and had not said much that was not directed at her friends, Wendy or Angelina. Sarah is my daughter's name, Mrs. Lau said in Cantonese, beaming. In her hands, she twirled a pink paper lily. Sarah smiled timidly and helped Mrs. Lau fold her own flower as Carmen led the table of seniors in a demonstration. The seniors were rapt, adoring. It is not a stretch to say that this monthly visit is one of the days they hold most precious, even as their cell phones ring and they chat about day trips to nearby casinos. I watched 90-year-old Mrs. C. fold an intricate pap- pink paper heart. Look how pretty my heart is, she said. I held it up to her chest, and she let out a snort of laughter. Her neighborhood, Mrs. Lu, an 80-year-old ethnic Chinese who came to the United States from Vietnam in 1979, invited me over for dinner, informing me that she was making vegetables and fish that night in her third floor apartment. We love it when the young people come to see us, she said in Cantonese, pushing up her glasses to look at me. They come every month, you know. We don't have a lot of places to go, so it's nice that they come and talk to us for a little bit. Two hours later, when I asked Carmen how her flower demo turned out, she gave me a thumbs-up and bounced on her toes. We finally got it to work, and then I did a speed version at another table, she said, grinning and rolling her eyes dramatically. She said she felt bad when all the other tables were littered with origami, and we didn't finish even one yet. At the end of the day, the Chinatown kids belong here. This is their community, and they have begun, little by little, to take ownership of it. Jeffrey, a quick-witted boy fluent in Mandarin and English, and jokey in both, practiced his nascent Cantonese with friends. Rosa asked a couple of new students for their email addresses and encouraged them to attend the annual camping retreat so they could get to know the other kids better. It's a lot of fun, you should go. She knows, she said from past experience. A pod of teenagers clustered over several handheld video games, Nintendo DS lights, which were a cooler version of Game Boy, a boy named Brian explained. They all hooked up wirelessly. As I collected my things, Brian and two girls named Quina and Donna recruited Rosa to join their three-player tournament. Okay, okay, one game, she said. She waved at me to go on without her. The transition from newbie Chinatown community leader back to regular Chinatown kid, easily made. Shrieks followed me out the door. Later, Rosa tells me that being in charge of the youth program is still new to her, but the community is not. I don't know what I'll be doing later on, but I think it will always come back to Chinatown, she says, pointing to the neighborhood as her anchor. Kind of like Norman, he's always here.